At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. In a culture growing in hostility, it's clear how far we are from what the kingdom of God should look like. As followers of Christ, it can be difficult to stand firm in what we are taught and what we believe in. It's easy to let idols slip into our lives without us even realizing it, especially when the world we live in puts people on a pedestal. In our new series, Daniel, The Clash of Cultures, we'll be looking at the life of Daniel and how even then Daniel had to navigate a culture who opposed God. We'll discover how we can put our trust in God regardless of our circumstances and how God is sovereign over all. Join us this new year as we study the life of Daniel and learn how to apply the truths inside this book to our own lives. Thank you, team, for your ministry today and so faithfully each and every week. Um, and I want to say a great big thank you to Josh Robinson. Josh, thank you, brother, for all that you do. Many of you know, and we explained this a couple weeks ago, um, as Josh rushes off the stage. <laughs> Josh has been part of our Woodside Leadership Institute for the past several months. Um, and several months ago, uh, he was kind of assigned to the Algonac campus as a place to continue to grow and learn and, and invest into, into the ministry here. Uh, as God has a wonderful future in store for him. Uh, and we have. You just talk to anybody uh, that's on the worship team, either musicians or in the tech team. Uh, we've all been blessed by his ministry. Uh, things are so much more in order. Uh, equipment uh, is all plugged in right, and mics are on, and it's, it's just that side is great. And then the team just has found a, a unity that uh, we just treasure. So thank you so much, Josh, for that ministry into our life. Uh, Josh, in seeking God's will, okay, God, what's your full-time desire for me? Uh, experienced a, really a blessing at a, as a church down in Texas, an hour from home, uh, an hour from where his parents are, has reached out to him, and after a series of conversations and things, they're begging him to come lead their worship ministry. Uh, and so we're excited for him. Uh, to launch into that, that wonderful place of, of service. Uh, we've treasured his time, and he set us up for great success. So, Josh, thank you. Would you help us thank him? Would you? Josh, God bless you. Yeah, you, you go with our great appreciation for all you've done, Josh. Thank you. Well, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Daniel chapter 4, Daniel 4, as we look at a very intriguing passage because it was, it's really the testimony of a pagan king somehow made it into the, into the holy writ, into the, into the scriptures. King Nebuchadnezzar has something he wants us to know. It's his personal testimony and sense. As Bill said, the Lions have a pretty exciting afternoon, evening tonight. Uh, they've had quite the season, and it's been fun to watch the news articles. I subscribe to the free press, so watching the different um, journalists try to give credit to where they think credit is due. Who gets credit for such success of the Lions? Is it Dan Campbell? 
that wonderful motivational coach with his biting kneecaps and playing with grit? Is it Brad Holmes, the general manager with his savvy at draft picks over this last season? Does he get credit for all their success? Is it Jared Goff, this smart and stable quarterback that's led them through this victorious season? Is it Aiden is it the Michigan blue that, that drives as the Hutchison family continues to invest into the football world as Aiden uh, comes in as an edge rusher? Is he the reason? St. Brown? Is it the Gibbs? Is it Montgomery? Who gets credit for this? Question is, it, you know, kind of happened in the uh, music world. Who gets credit for the Beatles' success? Is it Lennon or McCarthy? McCarthy. Who is it? Uh, well, who, what about the personal computers? Is it, is it Bill Gates? Or is it Steve Jobs? Who's the one that really changed the world in technology? What about success in your life? I mean, your successful career. Some of you recently retired and can look back over the way it provided for your family. We got, maybe you got some good accolades and you got some products that you uh, invested into and now are common use. Some of you have had some athletic prowess. You still have your letter jacket that you could be so proud of. Some of you in the midst of it right now, earning your letters and your pins and, and hoping to join the all-conference team and such things. And so you look at your life and think... Who gets credit for all this? This is what King Nebuchadnezzar, have you said that name recently? If you grew up in church, maybe you can say it. But if you haven't, let's try it. Ready? King Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, it's this guy you probably read about in your history books if you paid attention to history class. Because all world history courses cover his empire. I went down as in the IVP Atlas of History, of world history, records him, describes him as one of the most successful kings in history. Very few people make that description. He led the military conquest of the Assyrian Empire that was thought to be unbeatable at the time, and he defeated them. He then established his own empire in Babylon, the Babylonian Empire. The center of that was the construction of that massive city uh, with its phenomenal architectural designed hanging gardens of Babylon that still reigns as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And he was able to look around to say, and who gets credit for this? One of the walls that built, was built around the city, they tell us, was constructed with 164 million massive bricks. And tens of thousands of them were stamped with the message provided by King Nebuchadnezzar. Of course, you might wonder, well, I wonder how many he actually lifted and put in place. Well, it didn't matter. He gets credit, at least in his mind, for all that success of that wonderful 
world empire. Well, this morning in our series of the book of Daniel, these six very strategically placed stories in the life and times of Daniel during that season when the nation of Israel was brought into exile, having been conquered by the Babylonian Empire, we can see a number of these very intriguing clashes with the culture of the kingdom of God, with the culture of the day. And there's so many lessons we can learn and apply to our lives today. Because living faithfully for Jesus will bring you to times where you find a clash of values, a clash of claims to truth. And we can learn so much from from what we have in this record in the book of Daniel. In chapter 4, we see Nebuchadnezzar, swollen with pride and arrogance, Encountering a truth that is scattered throughout Scripture. In fact, there's a direct quote three times. Once in the Old Testament, twice in the New Testament. So it's a timeless truth that says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. It's like the Holy Spirit says, maybe you didn't catch that. Let me, let me have it written again. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Wait, some of you haven't heard that yet. <laughs> the Spirit of God says, and so in the book of 1 Peter, he writes again, yes, Peter writes, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. In chapter 4 of Daniel, we see King Nebuchadnezzar testifying of that truth. We see God taking him on a familiar journey, a journey that some of us are familiar with probably too often, a journey when pride begins to swell in our hearts and God, who is a jealous God, says, actually, once you go there, I take the position of an opponent to your ambition because pride is a destroyer of the human spirit. So here's the journey. First of all, God, number one, warns us of pride. He did this to Nebuchadnezzar, and he does this to us. The chapter begins in chapter 4 and verse 1 with Nebuchadnezzar saying, here's my story. This is what I learned, and I hope that peace can come to you because I've been shown that signs and wonders of the Most High God And he's taught me some wonderful things that his dominion endures to every generation. So if you're in the audience today or watching online, you're thinking, well, today is different. Actually, science rules today, right? There is no God. We found enough evidence that there is no God. Nebuchadnezzar here is here to say, (laughs) every generation, that God's rule is supreme to every generation generation. Yours too. Mine too. Here's how he learned it. Let's read together, starting in verse 4, and I'm going to read through verse 18. Here we go. The words of Nebuchadnezzar. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. 
So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. And then the magicians and the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream. If you remember a couple chapters earlier, he's making it easy for them. Telling you me the dream, all you got to do is give me the interpretation. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the vision of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth. Its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its tops reached to the heavens and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were, were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. And I saw in the vision of my head as I lay in bed, behold, a watcher a holy one came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. Let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers and the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know the most high rules the kingdoms of men. And he gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And over the next few verses, just for sake of time, let me summarize Daniel says to the king, that dream is about you. The tree, that's you. The one who thinks he's the smartest in the land, if you don't turn, will be given the mind of a beast. And you roam about, stripped away from everything that brings you pride. And you'll be made like an animal for seven years. Seven years. Verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be accepted to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. King, I'm just telling you, this is a warning from God. So turn. Now you have an opportunity. Maybe God will withhold what he's told you is coming. Warnings are good, aren't they? 
You know, you have them in your car. You saw them this morning. You started your car. If you didn't ride your horse and buggy or bicycle today, you came in a vehicle. And when that car started, all these lights come flashing up on your dashboard, right? That's, that's saying to you, we have a warning system just to remind you. And then as the car turns on, those warning lights go off. Unless there's a problem. All right, some of you, how many here drive a car with a warning light still on? Can I see your hand? Let's be proud. It's a wonderful crowd we live in. <laughs> some of you, maybe it's a tire low warning. Some of you have an engine light that you're assuming means just a vapor leak. Right, and so it's not a big deal. Maybe you've got it checked. If you haven't, I hope you do. Take it to Riley's or AutoZone or wherever and have them put that code so you just have some idea of what that warning light is. Because here's the thing. The manufacturers of this vehicle that you drive wanted you to have a pleasant experience. They didn't just want your money. They want your money for the next vehicle. So they want you to have a pleasant experience. So they've designed and engineered this so that when something starts to go wrong with your vehicle, you can give it its attention because warnings left unheeded bring bigger problems. And can I say that your designer, God himself, your creator, has done the very same thing with you. Oh, it might not look like a flashing light, Maybe it's, a, maybe it's a spouse that that's said, do you realize you get angry way too easy? Maybe it's a coworker that said, you're just hard to work with. Maybe it's a friend that said, don't you think you're drinking too much? Maybe it's some emotions that have risen up in your heart that have if you ever get honest, you can see that, man, I just got too upset over something that seems so small. Or maybe you get so excited over something that is so small. And your emotions that God gives to you are warning signs that you're overreacting one way or the other, and your overreaction is a sign that says something is out of line. Maybe it's your body giving evidence that something's out of whack. It's too much stress. You've taken on too much. But God's given us warning signs. Maybe, maybe it's come through a Sunday morning service where somebody was very offensive as they read a verse that just bugged you. Maybe that was God's warning sign that, no, something's not right. It needs addressed. Maybe it's a song that you've sung and, and it... And it Paint your heart because you know something's not right in you. This is God's way of saying, I love you so much. And things are out of line. Jesus came into the world, it says in Mark chapter 1, at the beginning of his ministry. And he began to go through the region, it says, and proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That Jesus' message was, hello, something's not right here. I know, you've come out of exile, now you live as a nation, and you're trying to now maintain your Jewish heritage, 
But the problem is, you are abiding by the regulations of the law, but your heart is far from God. So turn from that. God doesn't delight in simply the perfection of your sacrifices. God delights in the submission of your heart. That's what Jesus proclaimed. It's what the Holy Spirit puts on our hearts as he warns us of things that aren't right. And pride is one of those things that can cause such heartache. Nebuchadnezzar learned that God is not a God of empty threats. Certainly we as parents need to learn that, <laughs> that our kids pick up on them, right? Maybe you've been guilty in our time of emotion. If you don't stop, I'm going to take all your toys and we're going to take them to Salvation Army. I will. You won't. Nobody here have ever done such a thing. Okay, okay, you're going to keep that up. You're not getting anything for Christmas. Nothing for your birthday either. <laughs> And so at first, it provokes terror into the hearts of your kids, and then they begin to say, oh, this is just what happens when they get upset. I'll have my toys. I'll have my way. But that is not how God parents. God is a God whose words always come true. He's a God that doesn't have emotional lack of control. He's a God that is always self-sufficient. He always speaks what's truth. And so he comes to Nebuchadnezzar, and says, no, Nebuchadnezzar, if you don't turn, this is what's coming to you. Secondly, on this journey, God warns us of our pride. Secondly, he does judge our sin. This is one thing God has promised will happen. This is how it happened in Nebuchadnezzar's life. In verse 28, it says, all of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. You can just pause right there and just, just remember that. All that God said happened. At the end of the 12 months, God gave him 12 months to repent. At the end of those 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. For seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Lord, the Most High, rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as the eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird claws. Wow, is that not a visual? Remember, this is Nebuchadnezzar's words. This is his testimony. It's his story. He says, here's what's happened to me. Everything God said even though it took 12 months, and maybe, maybe, you don't know what happened in 12 months, maybe he was like, oh man, I'm going to watch and see. Well, nothing's happening. Okay, I guess I can relax. I guess I can go back to what makes me feel good, and that's thinking that all of this is because of me, and I deserve it all. But God's 
word stands. He learned, notice if in the middle where it says the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will, that's the third time, there's three times in this story that that statement is made that God rules and he gives to those that he decides. God rules. This is a statement we help our kids understand that here's, here's the thing about this world, God rules. It's how we started it. God created the world. Everything was in order like he designed and we brought chaos when we rebelled as humans against him. Because here's the thing with God. He has the authority to take away. He has the authority to give. And he makes it true, makes it clear to everyone. God's made it clear as humans that we are not everything. Look at nature. That's what the psalmist said. He said as if he was... um, Giving a reflection, he said, I looked at the heavens, the moon and the stars that were made, and I thought, wow, how little I am. What is man that the creator takes mind of me? Look at the expanse of creation, up to space or down through the depths of the ocean, so much uncharted territory. Who are we? Nature itself says we're small. We can take credit for nothing. There's so little under our control. Our success has to be explained by someone far beyond us, any measure of success. And then he gives us his special revelation. He sends us warnings. He warned Nebuchadnezzar. The judgment is coming. He warns us that pride will result in disaster. But Nebuchadnezzar's problem wasn't that he didn't have a warning. His problem was he didn't pay attention. He became complacent with those warnings. And man, how true that is of us. Some have asked the question, well, why is God, why does he act so harshly against pride? Pride seems so little. Until you really begin to ponder it, we begin to understand why. Was it Solomon that wrote the proverb, six things the Lord hates, yea, seven are despicable to him or an abomination to him? And then he gives the list of seven, and the first one he mentions is a proud look. If we were to make a list, it's probably not would make number one. What things do you think God hates? And I gave it, we gave each other that assignment. We'd probably come up with lots of different things. I don't know how, unless, unless we meditate on Nebuchadnezzar's story, rarely would we come up with that as number one. But that's, that's what the Holy Spirit seems to teach over and over, is pride is hated by God. Why is that? Why is it so strong? Why does he act so harshly to pride? Well, here's three things that I thought of. One, God is a jealous God. And I mean, and that's a very positive statement. When we think of jealousy, it's kind of negative amongst us, right? Because, because that's saying, I want what you have. Well, God's, and maybe that's not what we're entitled to. God himself is the only one, the only being who can rightly say, it's all mine. He's the only one. So he has said, I will not give my glory to another. Anybody that elevates themselves above what they should, 
will be brought low because I'm the only one who deserves that, deserves that role. But secondly, I think it's God hates pride because his heart is for the oppressed. Pride always crushes others. You say, well, I'm a proud person. Well, if, it, if that's true, then know that there's people around you that are hurting. Because pride crushes others. And this is what's different about the God of the Bible is that his heart goes out to people who are oppressed. He's the defender of the defenseless. He's the father to the orphan. He's the husband to the widow. To those that are oppressed, he comes alongside and says that I will extend my special grace to you. And then third, I think God responds so harshly to pride because God loves us. That God loves the proud one. He does. He loves the proud one. He knows that pride is never going to satisfy. It's never going to fill your heart with what you're looking for. Sometimes that's how we develop this self-attention um, and what some have called self-involvement, right? Where, where it's all about us because we feel like that's what's got to happen in order for us to be satisfied. And God says, that's not how I've designed you. I haven't designed you to be self-satisfied. I've designed you to find your satisfaction in me as your creator, that when you find personal relationship with me and you experience my love, that's when you'll begin to feel your heart filled. That's where shalom comes. That's where peace comes. That's where wholeness comes. And so when we replace him with ourselves, we're, we're rushing headlong towards empty. And he says, I haven't created you to be empty, but to be filled. filled. And so I warn you of pride. I confront your pride. The last few years, we've heard more and more of this label of narcissist and narcissism. It's a condition that the mental health world has described as an emotional immaturity whereby a person has an excessive degree of self-conceit and self-involvement. The Mayo Clinic describes it as a mental health condition in which a person has an unreasonably high sense of their own importance. It's derived, the term narcissist is designed, derived from Greek mythology. Some of you know the story, um, the fable of, of the character named Narcissus. Narcissus, who had renowned beauty and was, had become famous of being such an attractive individual. And one day he went to a fresh spring of water, according to the fable, and he bent down towards the water's surface to receive his drink, and he saw his own reflection and was so amazed at his beauty, he couldn't take his eyes off of himself. When it became time at the end of the day, he decided to stay there and wait till the sun came up so he could see his reflection again. And day after day, he stood at the water's edge admiring his beauty until he died. And this is Nebuchadnezzar. As he wandered for 12 months, looking around, looking at all that he created, thinking, look what I've done. There's another brick with my name on it, provided by me. And now I've got a garden, 
Now there's more kingdoms under my rule. Look what I've done to the point of self-destruction or God-discipline. And it's easy to look at some people and say, yep, tisk tisk. pride will get them. Here's what C.S. Lewis wrote. He said, pride is the one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when we see it in someone else, and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. <laughs> so why the story of Nebuchadnezzar? Why, did, why is this recorded in the annals of Scripture? Well, Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 10. These things happened to them as an example for us. They were written down for our instruction. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, look for Nebuchadnezzar as you examine your own life. Are there any of those times, those are times when we evidence a self-involvement where other people's opinion never reaches to the quality of yours? Is there ever a time when you realize that you're now and you're not trying to work through a conflict, now you're just trying to win? Are there any people in your life that just shake their head and begin to avoid you because they just realize there's no more room in, the, in your life for anyone else besides you? This isn't a, this isn't a chapter for self-condemnation. It's not, it's not a chapter to make us all think how miserable and rotten we are except that... <coughs> Only when we recognize how prone we are to turn away from God and turn to ourselves, only when we recognize that can we truly turn to the one God who desires to fill us. Because here's the thing about Nebuchadnezzar's story, and I'm sorry we're rushing through his story so much, but here's the third point on this journey of Nebuchadnezzar, that God restores us by his grace. Here's the cool thing about this dream that seems so horrendous as it becomes, begins to come true is that God restores us by his grace. Look at verse 34. At the end of the days, end of those seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And at that time, my reason returned to me. And the glory of my kingdom and my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the honor and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble when Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes to heaven and began to recognize how much he made of himself 
and little of God. And he, he turned to that conclusion that actually God is the only one who can rightly say, all this is mine. That God is the only one who can take credit for the good things in my life. Only then did reason return to him. And notice that it's after seven years. And maybe this is just a little thing, but this was encouraging to me. Seven years seems like a very long time. And, and maybe you're in a situation where there's brokenness all around and it's been years. Can I just remind you that even after seven years, there's hope. And that number seven is often used for that number of completeness. And it seems to imply it doesn't matter how long you go. As long as you have breath and God's spirit speaks to you and the warning light shines and you see a warning light, there's hope for you. There's hope for your loved one. There's hope for God's restoration because his grace is greater than all of our sin. His grace is greater than our pride and all the oppression and destruction that pride can bring. His grace is greater. So, what do we do? Well, one, I think first of all, we, we conclude that I too am susceptible to pride. It's got to start there. Now, some of you, you don't have to go very far because from the very beginning, you realize that God's spirit was going to speak to you today. But maybe there's some that would say, yeah, and I keep elbowing her. We're elbowing him, making sure he's awake and paying attention. So, so maybe for some of us, lesson number one is to realize, no, nope, we're all susceptible to this. It creeps into every one of us. So God, where? Ask the Father. Father, show me. Show me where pride has crept in. Open my eyes to the warning lights. What have I not been seeing? What have I not been hearing? Where have I made too much of myself, thought more highly of myself than I ought to think? Where, where is that? Secondly, as God reveals it to us, immediately, for the sake of God's love for you, confess that is sin. Admit that pride, yes, pride is an abomination to the Lord. I mean, that's a harsh word, and we don't use that word because, man, it seems so harsh, but God's used it. Pride offends him. So confess it as sin, and then immediately turn from that and embrace the grace of God that is freely given to you to restore you. God promises to lead you towards humility. And I, I think I've concluded that humility is not something that you can produce in yourself because if you can do it, uh, then maybe it's not humility. Maybe humility is a, a result of the song that you sang earlier. I surrender. I surrender. I surrender the right to be right. I surrender the right to be heard. I surrender the, the position of honor I just give myself to the king and let the king exalt who he desires to exalt. Let the king honor those who he desires to honor. 
So surrender yourself to him and allow the grace of God to cleanse you and to restore you and to put you on a path where now you're on the second half of the truth. God gives grace to the humble. Step away from the one side. God opposes the proud. Man, there's several people I don't want against me. But at the top of that list is God. There's several people I would love to have on my team. But the top of that list is God. I want to be on this side that says God gives grace to the humble. So as we wrap up this morning and kind of Nebuchadnezzar's thing, this is the last time Daniel, the book of Daniel would mention Nebuchadnezzar just when he started to pronounce his name right. We've got to go to Belshazzar, the next king. This is the last time we'll mention him. What a wonderful conclusion it ends with. I've recognized that God is always right, his ways are always just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Let's, let's cling to that. Let's walk in the ways of the king, humbling ourselves before the king, experiencing joyful worship as we enjoy our creator God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story. Um, boy, I'm glad that my story isn't written in scripture in the times that you've humbled me. The times that I've wandered badly outside of your plan. So thank you that it's Nebuchadnezzar's story that we can learn from, Lord. But I pray that gift of restoration would be our story too. As we humble ourselves before even now. That Lord, you would, rest- that you would remove the pride that takes root so easily and replace it with a spirit of surrender and humility, Lord. I believe that worship is how we start. We exalt you and we put you first in our minds and center of our affection, center of our attention. So even as we sing this song, may it place you as king of our life. Be with us as we, as we contemplate this and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing praise not to ourselves, but to the one true King. Let's praise him. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.